All right, welcome to the conversation on the TYT Network. Uh, we have a really interesting guest for you guys tonight. Uh, Theo Henderson is the creator and host of We the Unhoused podcast. He has actually a really interesting idea about what hotels can do during the coronavirus to really help. Uh, but, of course, both the hotels and the government have chosen not to do that. We'll get to that in a second. But, Theo, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, and... Uh, you're in a unique situation because you do a podcast about uh, the homeless or the unhoused, but you yourself are also unhoused. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, that was one of the genesis of why I felt it was important because uh, many people are talking about the unhoused crisis or houseless crisis or homeless crisis, but they rarely are asking unhoused people um, their opinion on the solutions that are part of their lives. So it's just like a, a, a dentist telling or making a root canal on the wrong tooth and you keep telling them this tooth on my wisdom tooth is, uh, needs to be extracted and they are taking out your front teeth so that, that's primarily the reason why I do, i'm doing what i do yeah by the way that literally happened to me uh so i know the <laughs> okay so so theo um for folks who aren't familiar uh i think that they have this that this issue that they the homeless feel like the others and 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 yeah. there, now there's this assumption: oh, they must have uh, either a drug addiction problem or uh, some mental health issues. In some of the cases, that's true. But it's actually, in places like LA, where you are, uh, that's actually a minority of the unhoused. So, as an example, Theo, how did you become unhoused? That's um, excellently put. Um, 60,000 unhoused people are not mentally ill and drug addict. And prior to this, and I always tell people this because I did not just one day decide, oh, this is going to be excellent living to live out on the street. I had a life. I'm a college-educated man, and I was a teacher. And I was teaching um, around the Great Recession, and I became ill. I went into a diabetic coma. And I was a battle between me staying in my place and healing. Because as you know, insurance at the time, pre-Obamacare, was not always the most uh, least inexpensive. So that, uh, that ended up a spiral, a downward spiral. I had lost my place. I started staying with friends, the kind-hearted friends. And then, um, then that became difficult because they were going through their own financial struggles. Then I would try to make my money stretched and go to these little seedy hotels. And then that, that money ran out until I finally hit the streets. And this story is not uh, an anomaly. Um, my podcast highlights a lot of stories where people were um, living life. And, for example, one of my uh, guests became unhoused in the apartment that he used to be a landlord to after his wife died. So these stories are very commonplace. The exception is always the uh, stories that uh, the police and business improvement district employees push out that unhoused people are criminals. Yeah. So real quick, Theo, was it any of the medical bills that was an issue for you? Medical bills. And not only that, uh, to be clearer, it was medicine. I needed money to pay for my medicine. And before I was not on Medicare, I was a working person and you don't qualify for Medicare if you're employed. Um, at the time, um, I had to pay for the medicine or pay my rent. And of course, I'm going to survive. And, you know, what good is paying the rent if I drop dead? So I have to, I had to make some hard decisions. Uh, it, this country's brutal, man. Uh, so uh, now, as you say, you're college educated, et cetera. So you're, you have 
you're savvy enough to be able to do a podcast under any circumstance, obviously. But it's got to be challenging when you don't uh, have a house. So how in the world did you put together a, a podcast? Well, if that's <laughs> it is a Herculean uh, task, I can tell you. Um, it is, and to be clear, people have always running around when they hear me say, "Well, why don't you get a job?" And I says, "Being doing a podcast is like your show is a job." Um, I f- I found this, uh, the sub- sub- solution and doing it by my phone. I interview people from my phone. I go to encampments. I go to wherever uh, overpasses, uh, way out in the thicket of places, and I interview unhoused people wherever they're at. And um, that's basically the long and short of it. I don't have the, uh, the fanciest studio equipment, so you're going to hear noises or police sirens or the things like that. But I also want to educate the populace. That's what their lifestyle is. We are guests in their home. It's not the other way around. So, yeah. Look, I'll uh, recommend your podcast. It's called We The On House. And I'll tell you why. When I briefly ran for Congress, it gave me an opportunity to spend a lot more time uh, talking to homeless folks uh, up in Lancaster, Palmdale, and other places. And uh, mm-hmm. and almost everything you hear is a misconception. If you if you bother to talk to folks uh, for a couple of minutes, or if you know if you're still worried about that because of the things that you've heard, at least hear Theo talking to them. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you're going to be shocked to find out their stories. And at the end of the day, you know what you're going to think? Oh, they're just like me, but they ran into yes. some trouble. Okay. Yes. And so that, and that's, I, that's the, especially in LA, that's the majority of cases. And I also want to add to uh, what people fail to realize COVID 19 has released, uh, the LA Times talks about 45% of people that are caught into the COVID 19 losing their jobs and living in these places. They will be joining the unhoused uh, ranks soon because of the financial um, difficulties that's going to bring about afterwards. Even though the, we are going back, uh, releasing the shelter in place orders, people are still losing their jobs. People are going to be paying back rent that can't pay back rent. And people are still going to be trying to survive in this type of new new normal, if, if that's such a word. So yeah. the unhoused crisis is going to be much more closer than they realize. So that's right. So now, Theo, you have an interesting idea about uh, the coronavirus situation. So mm-hmm. what do you think the hotel should be doing right now? The hotels right now should have been doing this a long time ago. We have two pandemics. We have COVID-19 and we have the war on the poor. And uh, what the project, uh, the project hotel uh, house key idea was a coalition of house and activists got together all over California to put the fire uh, to the feet of the mayor and the governor to start commandeering more hotels. What we got was a lackluster response. The Los Angeles Times released another report saying most of those hotels that they were uh, commandeering and making these uh, deals with are empty. So this is reminiscent to the uh, the Olympics of 1984. Uh, 2028 is coming up, and the criminalization and punitive measures of the unhoused is still in sync. There is no compassion. There's no humanity. It's only political compassion. Yeah, so look... Uh I'm not at all surprised the hotels uh, don't want to do it. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, and so do you think the government should uh, force them to do it? Um, and do they have the authority to do that at the state level? Yes, they do. And yes, they should. Um, it is amazing to me. And I don't know if you're um, uh, familiar with some of the ordinances and laws on the books. Look at the speed that it takes for them to penalize and criminalize on house. 
and look at the reluctance for them to exact the same speed when it comes to pushing our citizens to care about people that are in vulnerable and impoverished conditions. They drag their feet. They're begging them to have a heart. They're, you know, or they're just basically tone deaf. Or they're using terms like uh, political compassion or th these these ridiculous things where it should have been like, okay, we've given you billions of dollars of tax money. It is time for you to step up and become uh, much more concerned about your fellow man instead of about your uh, spreadsheet. Because you could always rebuild a building. You could always re uh, renovate a, ho a house or room. But we we cannot do is always... Uh, save a life if someone is in very in great need from health issues or and you don't have to have health issues. H housing is a human right and it should be in this country. So I guarantee you that their real issue is their concern about their brand and that if they have homeless people staying in their hotel, that people mm -hmm. are going to say, oh, I don't know if I want to go to that hotel anymore. Mm -hmm. I guarantee you that's their real issue, right? That, that uh, is but, yeah, but let's put that aside because they're not going to say that publicly. Uh, so, Theo, what they're going to say instead is, well, look, some percentage uh, of the homeless have addiction issues or mental mm -hmm. health issues. And so do you want us to just unsupervised give our rooms to those folks? Uh, so how do you answer that? Well, here's the simple answer. There are some people that are, have substance uses issues and mental health issues that have houses. Do we uh, take their houses away as a punishment? Or do we penalize and throw them on the street? Substance usage and mental health issues is a health crisis. We are in a health crisis. And if COVID-19 is just one uh, branch on the same tree, we can provide, instead of using 54% of our city budget on the LAPD to penalize and criminalize them or create uh, police officers like Frank Hernandez, we can use that same money to create the necessary tools and systems in place that we can do to change uh, what the what's going on with the substance usage and mental health crisis that we have here. Okay, so uh, uh, good luck to you, brother. Uh, yeah. Literally, right? Uh, <laughs> I, I think it's amazing that you're doing that program, uh, and I think that you're going to need a lot of luck uh, to convince politicians who take money from uh, big money insurers like probably hotels. But what you're saying is logical. There's no question that the hotels have rooms now. There's mm -hmm. no question at all. And yes. I've and I read the stories about uh, in in Nevada, Las Vegas, particularly people living out in the desert in the in the most you know in the hardest situations you can imagine, especially yep. some that are getting sick uh, because of coronavirus. Meanwhile, you got thousands upon thousands of available hotel rooms sitting completely empty. So. Man, it, unfortunately, it is some sign of the capitalist, uh, you know, country that we live in, uh, mm -hmm. and, and it's it's not a pretty picture. And certainly, yeah. the runaway, uh, outrageous form of capitalism that that we're doing at this day and age in America. Yes. All right, uh, and so uh, Theo, thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. Uh, everybody check out We The Unhoused, and, and if you like what Theo is saying about the, the movement uh, on hotels, please join, okay? Yeah, and No Vacancies is the uh, movement that we are part of. Uh, and I wanted to also point out, too, one of the other unhoused is Javon Brown was one of the uh, active uh, persons that 
came in, snuck into the Ritz-Carlton and demanded that the mayor give him a room, which he lied and said he did, but he ended up in a jail cell. So to understand this situation, we are still are not going to end the fight. We need to continue to push, put fire to the mayor and the governor on these, these requests, these promises that he made. Yeah, uh, that's exactly right. All right, Theo, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate thank it. Thank you for having me. All right, welcome back to the conversation. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about uh, what is the right model in terms of uh, treating coronavirus. Should we do more testing, less testing? Um, I, some of the answers are clear, uh, but there's a lot we could learn from what other nations have done. Well, that's what Andrew Romano uh, set out to study. He's a Yahoo News national correspondent, and he wrote about the German model versus the Swedish model, and he joins us now. Uh, Andrew, great to have you on the Young Turks. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, no problem. So, um, Andrew, first, let's talk about the Swedish model, because uh, a lot of uh, right wingers, including Rand Paul, are quoting it and saying it's great. It's amazing. That's the right way we should go. So what did Sweden do? Yeah. So Sweden uh, did, never instituted a hard lockdown. They basically advised the public there to practice you know, common sense social dis distancing measures. They limited gatherings to 50 people or less, but they let businesses stay open, bars, restaurants to some degree, uh, schools to some degree. Um, and the whole point was to sort of put agency with the population as opposed to putting in place, uh, you know, harsh lockdown measures um, and to kind of let it to a certain degree uh, that the pandemic kind of run its course through the population. Um, it's been, uh, there's been some positive aspects of this and some negative aspects, which we, we can discuss. Yeah, uh, I do want to get to that in a second. First, let's uh, lay out the German model as well. So what did the Germans do instead? The Germans did a, a hard lockdown. They relied heavily on data, um, especially r naught, which is the measure of the transmissibility of uh, the, the virus at any given point. If r naught is at 1.0, it means that each infected person is passing it to one other infected person, one other person, and the epidemic is kind of staying at a level uh, 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 a scale. If it goes over one, that means each person is passing it to more than one person. If it goes below one, then fewer. So sh shrinking if it's below one, growing if it's above one. And it kind of measured that, watched it closely, and used it to determine policy. So they did a hard lockdown. Once they saw that uh, case numbers and deaths were declining, once they saw that our number coming down, they decided to reopen. Uh, with a uh, data-driven um, snapback measure in place. If cases sort of progress past a certain point in a given municipality, then lockdown would resume. So they're in the process of sort of dealing with that now. They've seen it go up in some places. They've put lockdown back in place in those, uh, in those areas. But in general, uh, they, they, they've done pr pretty well as they've tried to emerge from lockdown. So, uh, Andrew, uh, how important is testing to the German model? It's very important. I mean, they instituted widespread testing early on. Um, they tested people who weren't necessarily showing symptoms to get a sense of the scale of the pandemic in the country. Um, they've been pretty methodical and or organized about it, as you would you know, expect Germans to be. Yeah, yeah that's the upside of German culture. So, um, so now, how about uh, reopening? You, you mentioned that uh, they had reopened in a lot of places. Are they more reopened than we are at this point? 
Well, I mean, measuring how reopened the United States is is a difficult thing because we're such a patchwork system. Um, you know, uh, there are certain places like here in L.A. which are doing a couple of things here and there to reopen, but really, you know, we're pretty much still in lockdown. Uh, places like Georgia, Georgia, on the other hand, are you know pretty much open. Businesses uh, have resumed. You can go bowling. You can get your nails done. You can get your hair cut, which I'm sure a lot of us need at this point. Um, in terms of Germany, uh, they I would say overall they're probably more reopened than us. They're a little further along this path, although we're catching up quickly in the United States. Right. And so um, Trump often brags about uh, how much testing we do. And then if you ask him any questions about it, it gets really touchy and calls you nasty. Uh, but how are we doing in testing compared to, let's say, the Germans who are have been considered to be doing a really good job at it? Yeah, we've ramped up. I mean, you know, there was a point where our testing per capita was really, really low. Um, we have been really ramping up a lot. So I think we're sort of getting to a place where we might be, at least in some some places, and again, it's such a patchwork here, and some states are doing better than others, where we are on sort of par with, with Germany. Um, I don't have the per capita numbers in front of me, but we've increased so much, I think, at this point, that there are places where uh, not enough people are taking advantage of the testing capacity. I think the question, the broader question about reopening in terms of testing and contact tracing here is whether we have the sort of infrastructure in place um, to kind of jump in quickly, do a ton of tests, uh, have the contact tracers in place to shut down flare-ups when they inevitably pop up in places that have reopened. That's what Germany has done really well. So it may be less a matter of the raw number of tests and more a matter of organization um, how well that infrastructure is set up to respond quickly uh, when we've seen flare-ups. So last week they started to see the numbers creep up, I think, in three uh, areas of the country, and they quickly put in place, uh, re resumed lockdown measures in those areas. Um, I don't know that in the United States we have the sort of infrastructure in place to do that. I also don't know if we have the kind of political psychology to do that. I feel like when people are reemerging from lockdown here, especially with that American mentality of, you know, sort of independence and individuality, that they're really going to want their, their state, uh, local or federal officials to kind of come back in and put in more government control. In Germany, they've been a lot more sort of accepting of that. Yeah. So, uh, but on the other hand, uh, I read a story today uh, about how North Dakota, a red state, uh, has done the best job of testing, and lo and behold, per capita, they have the lowest number of cases in the country. Not Again, not just based on population, obviously they don't have a high population, but per capita, uh, they still do the best. So it seems like testing is really, really important to this. But I want to go back to comparing the Swedish and the Germans. Because uh, the Swedes said, hey, let's just, you know, maybe herd immunity. If enough people get it, uh, we'll develop immunity. How did that turn out? When you compare the numbers of Sweden versus Germany, uh, who wound up handling the crisis better so far? Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's it's hard to say. So what we've seen in Sweden is uh, sort of uh, uh, disproportionately high fatality rate. So there are more people dying there per capita than in similar neighboring countries like Denmark and Norway that locked down. Um, in fact, over the last seven days, there was a new Reuters report about this that just came out. I believe that Sweden had the highest, the most per capita deaths from coronavirus uh, of any country in Europe. And that's including countries that have been much harder hit like Italy and France. Um, so you're seeing, frankly, 
sort of more death per, per capita there if the, uh, the sort of fatality rate in Sweden uh, was replicated here in the United States, we would have seen probably about 35,000 more deaths, so well over 100,000, just to give people a sense of that. Um, that has been the downside of the Swedish approach. The upside is that people haven't um, sort of retreated into their homes as much. There hasn't been as much isolation. Um, they felt a little more connected. Um, and, you know, so there's an ec economically, there's some sort of mixed signs. We'll see what happens. But that at least in the first quarter of the year, their economy is not taking as much of a hit as neighboring countries. So there's sort of upside and downside to it. It's kind of a question of how much government control are you willing to accept in exchange for how much faith, you know, how much a, of a fatality rate. Um, and Sweden is leaning more to sort of letting, you know, letting the, the, the virus kind of run its course a little bit through the population. Yeah, so um, I, I get it. I, I'm not surprised that their economy would be uh, doing a little bit better because they didn't have to lock it down. So that's logical. Um, uh, on the other hand, uh, the highest, you know, death per capita of those that neighborhood is not a good sign. And so then it gets to the question of who's dying. So in terms of people getting sick, anybody can get sick. So, but in terms of the people who are more likely to die, well, it, it's been the elderly. And so uh, it, this, if that equation holds, it seems to me, looking at it from the outside, that the, what the Swedes decided to do was, in effect, whether they intended to or not, is sacrifice the old uh, to preserve the economy and, and their freedom of movement. And it seems to be, have been the result. Yeah, it's it's a harsh equation, but there is some truth to that. I mean, obviously, if you're not putting in place stricter social distancing measures, um, the virus is going to spread and it's going to affect more vulnerable populations because of that. So, as you said, the elderly in Sweden uh, sort of disproportionately affected, I believe, something of half half of the deaths have occurred in elder care homes. They've admitted that that's been a huge problem there. Um, in immigrant communities as well, it's been a problem. And so it's affected more vulnerable people. And that does seem to be, to some degree, the trade-off they're making. I think the question is, um, you know, they've, they've been uh, kind of circumspect about whether they're actually trying to achieve herd immunity. But the epidemiologist who's kind of in charge of their program there has claimed that something like 25% of people in, in, in the country have uh, contracted the virus, whether it's symptomatic or asymptomatic, that there's a large number of people who've had this already and that they're closer to achieving that herd immunity. Now, those, those that data is very suspect. It would suggest, uh, you know, a, 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 you know, a, a sort of a, a, a prevalence rate that was equivalent to New York City's and the New York metropolitan area where there's been far more deaths uh, than you've seen in Sweden. Um, and so it doesn't seem like they have their data right on that. And if they don't, it means they're not nearly as close to achieving herd immunity as they think. And the virus is going to continue progressing through the population and continue affecting uh, these vulnerable, uh, you know, uh, members of the community. Yeah. So I get the trade-offs. I don't know about other folks. I love my parents too much to make that trade-off. So no deal uh, for me. Um, but last thing here is we're out of time, Andrew. Is, is there really a case to be made against the German model? If you can do that amount of testing and, and tracing, is there really a downside to doing it that way? Because it seems like they reopen the economy quicker and they have less deaths. So where's the downside? 
Yeah. I think the, 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 the answer to that question is the if that you propose there, if you can do it, if you can do that tracing, if you can do that testing, um, and if you're willing to accept as a society that level of government uh, intervention. And America is a very different country than Germany. And we're, you know, we haven't put in place the infrastructure as rigorously. And we don't seem to be as politically open to the kind of snapback measures that Germany has put in place. So I'm skeptical that we can do that here in the United States. Um, it seems like we're moving almost more towards a Swedish kind of model, at least in, in, in some states. And we'll see how that plays out. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, I have a sense of how that's going to play out. Uh, and that might be why Florida and Georgia currently are hiding their real numbers on uh, coronavirus cases. Um, all right, uh, Andrew Romano from Yahoo News. Everybody check it out. Uh, really great article uh, comparing the two systems. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much.